morning, everyone. I hope everyone can hear me and I'm not too loud. I named uh, the message for today, Another Man's Treasure. Another Man's Treasure. And it comes from a phrase that everyone, I'm sure, is familiar. It says, uh, one man's trash, trash is another man's treasure. And I have some uh, illustrations of that. And the idea behind it is something somebody might consider not worth keeping, somebody else finds, and that's uh, to them the most wonderful thing. And uh, we'll apply it to the passage. We'll see that things that this world does not esteem are esteemed very highly by God. If we can get that up and running. So the first picture, whenever it comes, is of uh, my daughter. We went down to Los Angeles for uh, Passover last week, and uh, she went. We visited my uh, parents-in-law's house, and there was a little uh, ball that uh, she enjoyed playing with until she kicked it into some thorny bushes, and uh, it came apart into pieces, and you'd assume at that point it's trash, but not for her. For her, uh, it was a treasure. There was something else she could do with it. Well, I have some better example of another man's trash being, one man's trash being another man's uh, treasure. We'll go to the next one. So this is a 72-year-old California woman. This was in the news not too long ago. I don't know if anybody else read about it, but uh, her father, uh, her husband was deceased. She was a widow, and uh, she was uh, cleaning up part of her house, and she came across an old baseball card. And uh, with a team photo of the Cincinnati Red Stockings. And not knowing what to do with it, she called a friend to help her list it on eBay for $10. When the friend came over to help, she convinced the woman to have it looked at by an expert. Good move. The expert identified it as a card from 1869 in near perfect condition. Deciding to forgo eBay, she auctioned it off for over $75,000. All right, the next one, so I have a few of these. The next one is uh, Elizabeth Gibson stumbled upon a painting on the side of a Manhattan street. The painting was sitting there waiting to be picked up by the garbage collectors. You know, I can't exactly blame them, but... Uh, she, liked, she liked the colors used in the painting, but didn't know anything about it. She took it home and researched it over the next few years. Turns out it was a lost masterpiece called Tres, or Tres Personages, painted by a famous Mexican artist named Rufino Tamayo. The painting sold at an auction, auction for a cool $1 million. Right, the next one is a man in Indiana stopped at a yard sale on his way home one day. He bought a couple of items of furniture and a painting he thought his wife would like. The furniture went into the living room and the painting covered the hole in a wall. A few years later, he was playing an art-themed board game called Masterpiece. He noticed that one of the cards featured a painting much like the one that was being used for home improvement. 
He did a little extra research and discovered that the painting was an original by Martin Johnson Hee, the classical American still life artist. The painting was bought by a museum for $1.2 million. Next one. A Pennsylvania man purchased a painting for $4 at a local flea market. He liked the frame and thought he could restore it. When he couldn't restore the frame to its original luster, he nearly tossed the frame and painting into the trash. Instead, he took the painting out of the frame and discovered an old folded up piece of paper behind it. He had found one of the 24 known copies of the Declaration of Independence, which were used to spread the good news around the country. The historic document sold at an auction for $2.42 million to an Atlanta businessman. Pretty good for $4, huh? <laughs> right, last one. Uh, a few years ago, the relatives of English doctor Harold Carr were going through his things for an estate sale. When they went to a barn on the property, they came across a car that had not been used since about 1960. Not knowing what it was, the family called in someone to identify the make and model. It was a 1937 Bugatti Type 57S Atlante with a mere 24,000 miles in all original parts. Only 17 were ever made unless are present today. The car went at auction for just under $3 million. One man's trash, another man's treasure. Let's go ahead and uh, turn to today's passage. We've been going through the book of Luke, and I've really come to almost the very end. This is the last night of the Lord Jesus with his disciples. He uh, just had what we would call the Last Supper with them. And uh, in verse 24, we find this happening. So Luke 22, verse 24. But there was also rivalry among them. This is the disciples or the apostles. As to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Rivalry. I had uh, an opportunity to see it up close and personal a few years ago. I was working for a company 
that was bought by another company. This was a, actually a European company that came into the United States and they wanted to have a, basically an equivalent to what they had in Europe. And the way they did it is they bought a few different companies in the United States that they were going to then combine into one company. And uh, it was very interesting to watch what happens because my company had a president. And the other companies that were bought, each of them had a president. And you realize at the end of the year or so, there would only be one president. And not just that, the same thing for the uh, you know, VP of sales, VP of technology, all of that, those positions had to be uh, condensed. And you, you started seeing all kinds of infighting and rivalry arise as people were trying to vie for that top position. And uh, we can look down at those people but I think uh, we find that it's really the same which each and every one of us, maybe not vying for a job, but competing for something. I was in uh, uh, LA for the Passover, as I mentioned, and my, uh, my, brother, my brother's son sat down at the piano and he played the piano. And I was like, boy, that sounds a lot better than my daughter's playing the piano. <laughs> you could that, just see that parental jealousy rising up and at different stages in our life, it's different things. At uh, you know, high school, it might be uh, how good I look or how popular I am. Uh, at college, it might be uh, how good my grades are or how pretty my girlfriend or how handsome my boyfriend might be. Uh, today, it might be uh, what kind of a house I can own or what kind of a car. We're always trying to one-up one another. There's always this competition. Uh, and uh, the saddest thing is when that actually enters the church itself and, and people within the church are competing, that's what was happening with the disciples. They were actually competing for the number one position. Uh, I remember when I was in Berkeley as a, a new believer and I started a Bible study, uh, I had a friend who also had a Bible study and it always grinded against me the wrong way that he had more people going to his Bible study than I had coming to mine. And it ought not to be so. Jesus said this to uh, the apostles, actually this very night, but probably he's been teaching this concept for a long time. Uh, he said this, a new commandment, John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you can't see that kind of love when we're fighting and are at each other's throat trying to vie and, and uh, do better than one another. It goes completely against what Jesus said. Uh, it's notable to me that this is the very end of Jesus' ministry with his disciples. In fact, it's the very last night. And you think, this is the time when the coach comes and just throws in the towel. I've been working with these guys for three years. And look, they're still fighting with one another for the number one position instead of loving one another, as I've been teaching them. And it's so encouraging to see that that is not what the Lord does. Instead, he gently takes them and works with them and tries to open their eyes to see what true greatness is. And uh, as a verse in, uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 13, where it says that love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, Love endures all things, and that's how the Lord is as he is working with us. And we have a promise uh, for us in Philippians 1.6 that 
that being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So if you take nothing uh, else out of this uh, meeting, take the encouragement that Jesus is working with us and will continue to work with us to bring out this character, this value of greatness he wants us to have. Praise his name. The first thing Jesus does is he uh, points out, if you would, the error of what the world considers uh, to be greatness. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactor. The world thinks greatness is being able to tell other people what to do, to have other people look up to us and us being able to use them to then do what we need them to do to help ourselves, really using other people for my own good. And uh, that's selfish, it's self-seeking, and it's actually sinful behavior. It's the last thing Jesus wants to see his disciples doing. Instead, he tells them, but not so among you. On the contrary, let he who is greatest among you, let him be, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. To better understand what Jesus means here, we can go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul urges the believers to do the same thing. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the way the world is like. The world does things through selfish ambition or conceit. If you take away self-ambition or conceit, not much will happen in this world. Most of what's being done is people doing for really their own good and their own advantage. But we as believers should, with lowliness of mind, esteem others better than ourselves. What does it mean to esteem others better than ourselves? He continues to explain, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. I have needs, I'm sure you have needs as well. To esteem you higher than myself means to consider your needs more important than my needs, and instead of using all my resources to just take care of my own problem and, and provide for my own needs, I use them for you to take care of your needs, to help you with what you need. That's what it means to esteem others better than yourself. Your needs become my needs and even higher. I want to make sure that you are provided for. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Uh, I was trying to think of examples for it, and boy, it's difficult to find examples where I'm actually esteeming somebody else higher than myself. Uh, the closest I could, I could think of, and this is actually my wife, uh, who's not among us right now, so I can talk about her. But uh, my wife, some of you know, uh, when we had kids, she would get very sick with the kids. I mean, you know what you call morning sickness, except it lasts all day long, and you can't keep anything down. And in the case of my wife, she couldn't even keep water down some of the time. I actually had to take her into the doctor so that they could fill her with fluids so she could keep on going. So she was really very sick 
And uh, one night, uh, when she was pregnant with my second daughter, uh, my first daughter, who was around two years old, came down with a croup. But uh, for whatever reason, in the case of my daughter, so croup, basically, the, uh, as I understand, your, your breathing passages uh, become inflamed. And as a result, uh, the breathing becomes cons cons constricted. So it's more difficult. And you'd look at my daughter, and her chest was going, was going like in and out. You could tell how difficult it was for her to breathe, and she was crying. But there was almost no audible sound in the crying because she just didn't have the air to breathe. And so we got in the car and drove her to the doctor, to actually the emergency room. The emergency room uh, shut her up with some uh, uh, steroid that was supposed to reduce the inflammation, and they called in uh, Stanford uh, Hospital, Stanford Hospital Center, an ambulance to get our daughter, but the ambulance wouldn't take us, so we had to drive behind them. And there I was driving the car, and there was my wife, you know, with a bag just heaving into the bag as we were driving. And to me, that was an example esteeming others better than yourself. She, she was more concerned for the welfare of my daughter than she was for really her own good. And uh, that's a natural love that God puts in us parents for our children, because our children desperately need our love. It's something that God does. And yet Jesus wants us to love one another in this way, not just our own children. Okay. So Jesus then uh, does something interesting. He asks them a question. For who is greater? He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Isn't he just saying the very opposite of what he was teaching us? Isn't that he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. He's actually going back to the point. What he's showing here is the contradiction. This is what the world will tell you, that the person sitting at the table and being served by someone else is the greater person. But Jesus says, look at me. I am here among you as the one who serves. He's, he's really straining here because it's just so difficult for us to believe that it's really greater to put someone else's needs above myself instead of having them serve me. It's just so contrary to our thinking. Jesus is straining to prove the point to them. And uh, prove the point he does. Think about who Jesus is. Uh, if we were to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. That's who Jesus is, the Son of God, whom he had appointed heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus. The table and the man sitting at the table belong to Jesus while he serves them. Through whom he also made the world. We're just here because he made us. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He is the one who reveals the nature and glory of God. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. That's what this passage is saying. And upholding all things by the word of his power, our very continued existence is supported by him. Uh, I have some background in physics, and uh, in physics they have what they call the unified theory, if I get the name correctly, and they're trying to understand how the world is held together and there's these different forces of electromagnetism and gravity and the weak force and the strong force. 
And the scientists are just trying to find what is it that's holding everything together. What this passage tells you, it's Jesus that's holding us together minute by minute. Upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Uh, I think there's a phrase that says the proof is in the pudding. I may be misapplying the phrase, but the proof that greatness is serving others is Jesus. Jesus is the greatest person of the, in the universe, and we see him serving others. In fact, in this very passage, uh, I liked how Charlie pulled that out of uh, during the breaking of bread. This is his last night, and instead of thinking about himself and the suffering he's about to go through, he's serving his disciples. He's trying to open their eyes to see what, what true greatness is. He's serving them. But uh, the greatness act of service that Jesus did, uh, we can appreciate perhaps going back to Philippians uh, chapter 2. And we can continue reading in verse 3. We read verses 1 and 2 already. Actually, I think I have my verses. We read 3 and 4. We'll read uh, 5, <coughs> continuing at 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the passage here starts with really the same thing. <clears throat> Jesus was using himself as an example for the disciples to esteem one another and to serve one another instead of trying to one-up one another. Paul is doing the same thing here. Right after telling the disciples that they should esteem others better than themselves, <clears throat> he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus again as an example to follow. <clears throat> let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus esteemed others better than himself. <clears throat> he is God, and it says so in the passage, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He gave up, in a sense, being God. Not that he stopped being God, but he was no longer in heaven on the throne enjoying the privileges of being God. Instead, he was here on the earth as a man, as a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He went all the way down to die and to die on the cross. Why? 
Why did Jesus do that? Why do we say that that was esteeming others better than himself? Because Jesus on the throne in heaven was looking at you and he was looking at me and he saw us in our sins and he saw our future in the lake of fire being forever separated from God and he said, better me than them. Better me than them. He esteemed you higher than himself. And so he went to the cross so that you can go to heaven. Now, we, uh, we sang and we talked a little bit about some of the reasons for the resurrection. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? And uh, there's many reasons. The grave could not hold him. Death could not hold him down. Uh, he needed to rise to finish our work of salvation. So there's many reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. Yet there's a specific reason given here by Paul. And he says, therefore, because Jesus did this, because Jesus esteemed you higher than himself and went to the cross to die in your place, therefore, because of that, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those on he in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God thought what Jesus, what Jesus did was so wonderful that he deserves the highest place in the universe. Now, we know that Jesus deserves the highest place in the universe by virtue of who he was, the Son of God. He didn't need to come here to the earth to prove that he deserved it. And yet, at the same time, God put his mark of approval on what Jesus did for you and for me. And the reason that Paul is bringing this up in this passage is actually to encourage us to esteem others better than ourselves. He was saying, this is what God thinks of that. Greatness in this world is not going to the top and putting people under you. It's literally esteeming others better than yourself. Because that's what Christ did, and that's what God put his seal of approval on. There's a popular verse in the Bible. I think it's probably the most popular verse in the Bible. Always quoted just a little part of it. It says this in Romans 8, 28. Through 29, and we know that all things work together for those for good. We know all things work together for good. And we often stop there. We'll sometimes continue a little bit further and say, and we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. Okay, well, we're willing to leave that. Most of us will claim that we love God, and we want so desperately that everything works good for us. So it's a verse we like to believe in, and it's true. It is true. But it continues saying to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then he, he actually explains what he means by everything working together for our good. Okay? It's not so that, you know, I get a nice, comfortable sleep at night. It's not uh, so I have food on my table or that uh, I have a, a, a loving spouse or, or healthy children. It's not that, because it continues, for, for, this is why we know that he works all things together for good. Uh, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that, me, that, we, that he 
might be the first, firstborn among many brethren. Our ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and so far, okay, well, that sounds pretty good to be like Jesus. But what does it mean to be like Jesus? It means esteeming others better than yourself. Actually being like him. Uh, we know we'll also have the same body that he has. And we'll enjoy may, many other things. But being conformed to the image of Christ is actually to become like him. There's nothing better can happen to me than to learn to esteem others better than myself. That's what God is saying. All right. Um, and continue here as, as Jesus is speaking to them. He says, uh, But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. There are trials that are involved. There's, there's suffering or disadvantage. When I put others better than myself, it means that I'm going to suffer. Sharon was less comfortable heaving in the car behind the ambulance than she would have been in our, in our house. There could have been more comfort. Uh, putting others before you might mean you get less sleep. It might mean uh, instead of spending uh, the money that the Lord has given you to uh, have a nicer car, maybe you'll have a car that's not so nice because you use some of it uh, for others. There's many ways in which putting others better than myself will have negative consequences on me, at least as far as this world is concerned. And because of that, Jesus gives a final encouragement to his disciples to esteem others better than themselves. And uh, that's the last two verses we have here. I bestow, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What does Jesus mean here? Well, there's, there's at least three blessings that are hidden in these verses. The first one is that we get to participate in his kingdom work. God gave him a kingdom. He went to this world to save people and bring them to God. That was his real kingdom work, to bring people into his kingdom. The only way God can use us to bring kingdom, to, sorry, to bring people into his kingdom is by esteeming them higher than ourselves. That's, that's a qualification. God can't really use you to bring people to himself without you actually being willing to esteem them higher than you, humbling yourself. Uh, I remember I had uh, a young man uh, come, uh, come to meet with me. I was trying to work with him in the scriptures and try to help him come to the Lord. Well, you know, he had limitations in his schedule, and I changed my schedule to meet his needs. I had to put him higher than myself to even be able to work with him and show him the scripture. I had to esteem him higher than myself. So to be included in kingdom work, we must esteem others better than ourselves. Uh, next thing that Jesus says, uh, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, I think about fellowship here. Uh, in order, it says, how can... How can uh, two walk together unless they are agreed? How can we have fellowship, walk in fellowship with Christ unless we're in agreement with him? Well, he's esteeming others better than himself. He thinks of others 
of such value that he came down from the throne in heaven to die for those sins. If I don't do that, if I'm not esteeming others better than myself, I can enjoy no fellowship with Christ. Uh, Paul said that uh, his great desire in the Christian life was to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul wanted to have fellowship in the suffering of Christ because that's the only way he had fellowship with Christ. To have fellowship with him, we need to put others, esteem others higher than ourselves. Uh, finally, uh, and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, positions of greater responsibility. And uh, I don't know exactly what Jesus has in mind here for the apostles. This might describe what will happen uh, during the millennial kingdom or maybe at the period after that for them to be sitting as judges over Israel. It really means rulers. Um, but I know this, to have a position of greater responsibility and greater effectiveness in God's kingdom, in God's work in the church, again, requires the same qualification, esteeming others better than yourself. You can't rise up and do more and more for God without first proving and growing in this area of esteeming others better than yourself. Okay, uh, let me close with this verse. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45, says this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is a, a parable where Jesus describes himself as a man. And as a man, he finds a treasure in a field. This is, again, going back to this uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. He finds a treasure in a field, and he's so excited about this treasure, he goes and he sells all that he has. And that's a picture of the cross. In order to buy that field and have that treasure that is in that field. And that treasure speaks about you. And it speaks about me. Uh, and to help... With uh, what I'm trying to say, I have a, a poem here I'd like to read to you. And I've heard it at the Yosemite Conference. It was read by a man uh, named Joe Reese. But it's actually a poem written by a lady named Myra Brooks Welch. And it's called, The Touch of the Master's Hand. And we get uh, the last picture on the screen. was battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried, who starts the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Do I hear two? Two dollars? Who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from... The room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the actioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, 
What now am I bid for this old violin as he held it aloft with its bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, we just don't understand. What change it's worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered with bourbon and gin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. You are like that old violin. The world may not see much value in you. You may not see much value in you, but the master, like that master of a violin, sees the value in you. Jesus sees not what you are, but what you can become. And if you submit yourself to his hand, the master's hand can bring out of you that value that this world cannot see, but God, looking at you, sees the value you can have if you submit yourself to the master's hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for seeing in us a value that we could never see. Thank you that Jesus came down into this world to die for each and every one of us. If there's someone here who does not know him, who has not yet submitted himself or herself to the master to see what wonderful treasures he can bring out of their lives, Lord, we pray that they might make that choice, that they, that they might make that choice today. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.